Well, good morning. Well, the good Lord has blessed my wife, Victoria, and I with two young sons. We have a three-year-old named Elijah, and we have a one-year-old named Luke. And for us recently, a goal for us as parents has been to instill and implement patience in our boys. You're already laughing. So this will not be a shock to you, but we have struggled in our quest to implement patience. And I think the reasons for this are twofold. One, they're three, and they're one. So we're kind of already pushing the rock uphill, so to speak. Secondly, and this is a secret, so please don't tell anybody, but Victoria and I are not very patient. We have struggled we, with patience in our goal to implement patience. As a matter of fact, last week I was in the kitchen and Victoria was at the dinner table with the boys and Elijah was trying to eat dessert before his meal as he's prone to do. And Victoria rightly corrected him and disciplined him and said, that's not how we operate in this house. And at that very moment, I was standing in the kitchen, biting on a piece of cheesecake. <laughs> so I did what any good pastor would do. I repented. I felt bad about it. I took one step to the right and I finished the cheesecake. Because <laughs> we wouldn't want it to go to waste. You see, all of us struggle with patience, don't we? All of us tend to want things on our terms. And maybe even especially, we want things on our terms when it comes to our relationship with God. Many of us think it's God's job to treat us kind of like Burger King, where the old motto was, your way, right away, at Burger King, now. And if we are a people who struggle with patience, when it comes to things like waiting in line at Starbucks, then how much more are we going to struggle with patience when it comes to enduring suffering and in persevering through trials? As we look at our passage this morning in the book of James, this is exactly what James is going to speak about. In this passage, James is going to exhort the believers of his day as well as us to be patient in the midst of suffering, to persevere in the midst of trials, and to focus on the promised return of Christ, which is ultimately what makes that patience and perseverance worthwhile. So please turn with me to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 this morning. Starting in verse 7, James says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, James starts off this passage by using the word therefore. And whenever you study scripture and you see the word therefore, you have to always stop and ask yourself, what is that word there for? What is it there for? What's it trying to say? And in this case, James is signaling a transition from what he is about to say in comparison to what he just said in the previous six verses. Because if you recall from last week when Roger was up here talking about 5, 1 through 6, James 
really gets after the ungodly rich of that time and how they were using their power and using their wealth in ungodly ways and even even bringing about persecution on the faithful believers of that time. And James how, talks about how their ultimate destination is going to be destruction. And now starting in verse 7, James redirects his attention to his primary audience. And if you recall from the very beginning of the book of James, his primary audience is a bunch of Jewish Christians who have come to faith and have been scattered all around. And they're being persecuted and they are suffering. And they are asking, when is God going to do something about our situation? When is he going to intervene and get rid of our suffering? And with that in mind, James tells them to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And right here in the beginning of verse 7, James is going to lay the two foundational truths which the whole passage hangs on. These two truths found right here at the beginning of verse 7. And the first truth James communicates is the need for Christians to be patient in the midst of suffering. Because suffering is a part of life and is certainly part of the Christian's life. It was then and it is now. And James says the appropriate response to suffering is to patiently endure it. To patiently endure it. And this leads us to James' second main point of the passage. Which is that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. James says, be patient because and until the Lord is coming back. He's coming back. And this time when he comes, he is not coming as a baby in a manger. But he's coming as the conquering king. He's not coming to die for our sin. He already did that. He's coming to judge it. He's not going to suffer unjustly on a cross, but he is going to justly dispense blessing and judgment for all eternity. Now, when we talk about this coming of the Lord, it is important to understand that Scripture speaks about this coming, this return of Christ, in two different ways. And we believe the reason for that is because it's talking about two different events or two different phases to the Lord's coming. And the first event or the first phase is what is called the rapture, the rapture. And the English word rapture is derived from the Latin and it just means to be caught up, to be caught up, to be snatched away. And the primary passage we find this in is 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 13 through 18. You also see stuff about it in 1 Corinthians 15 and even in John 14. And Scripture describes the rapture as an event where all those who are in Christ, both dead and alive, are caught up with Him in the air and are with Him forever. They go to heaven. That is the rapture. Now, after the rapture has taken place, those left on the earth will undergo a great tribulation. This is what is called the Great Tribulation. (laughs) And at the end of the Great Tribulation, the seven-year period after the rapture, Christ will then return again. This time not for us, 
but with us. This time we're not caught up in the air, but we come all the way to the ground, to the earth. This is what is typically referred to as the second coming of Christ. And this second coming will be an event that ushers in what's called the millennial kingdom. A thousand year period discussed in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 and prophesied throughout the Old Testament where Christ will reign physically on the earth with his saints. Now that's a quick overview. If you are interested in going more in depth, Roger preached on this two times last year in the question series. So if you're someone who just loves eschatology and end times prophecy, have at it. They're there on the the Wayside website. You can go listen to them under the questions series. But just remember these two events, if you want to keep them straight. In the rapture, Christ will come for the saints and meet them in the air. On the second coming, Christ will come with the saints all the way to the earth, ushering in the millennial kingdom. Now, to be clear, for total transparency, there is much diversity of thought within Christianity about the exact details of Christ's return. But there is great uniformity within Christianity and has always been that the Lord Jesus is coming back physically to the earth. We believe this because it's guaranteed by the New Testament. We see this referenced over 300 times in places such as Acts 111 after Jesus has ascended. It says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. We see it in Mark 8.38 during Jesus' ministry when he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... And this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We see this at the very end of the Bible, the next to last verse in the entire Bible, Revelation twenty-two twenty, It says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So the New Testament is clear that Christ is coming back. And the fact that he is coming back, as well as the fact that we are to patiently endure suffering until that time comes, had tremendous implications for the readers of James's day, and it has tremendous implications for us in the here and now. Because you see, our blessed hope as Christians, as Titus 2.13 talks about, our blessed hope is centered on the return of Christ. And as a result of that, we must recognize that our hope as Christians, hear me on this, our hope as Christians is primarily future. Our hope as Christians is primarily future. Now that is not to say this life doesn't have great meaning and purpose and value, because it does. It has tremendous value. But we must understand That the hope of a Christian is a present hope in what is ultimately a future fulfillment. We have a down payment in this life of what is to come. We have the Holy Spirit. But the fullness of our salvation is future. 
the fullness of our salvation, and the complete end of suffering and end of evil is future, not present. And it's tied to the return of Christ. And Christians are so often confused when it comes to this truth. And as a consequence, their faith suffers. Their faith suffers. But God never promised that we wouldn't suffer. As a matter of fact, He promised the exact opposite. And John says, in this life, you will have troubles. It's a guarantee. He told us we'd have them. And so if our expectation is that God is going to remove all of our suffering in the here and now, we will constantly be disappointed and bitter towards God. And our disappointment and our bitterness will be over something He never promised. He never promised that we wouldn't suffer. And you may ask, is it okay if I pray to have my suffering removed? Of course it is. He told us to do that. Paul prays with great intensity three times to remove the thorn from his flesh. I suffer from a physical condition of what is called cluster headaches. They're called suicide headaches. And when I am in a cluster, that is when I pray some of my most intense prayers, pleading with God to take away the pain and to take away the suffering. God wants us to do that. But asking with an expectant faith that God can remove my suffering is very different than asking with an entitled faith that reasons because I'm a Christian and God loves me, he has to remove my suffering. Those are completely different things and different approaches. The truth is scripture teaches that we will suffer, but that there is a day coming when Christ will return and the suffering we experience will all be worth it. This is what Paul speaks to in Romans 8.18 when he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says that these present sufferings don't compare to what is to come. And that totally did not mean that Paul didn't care about this life, but he understood the future fulfillment of his hope. Now, after communicating the need for patience in the midst of suffering, James is now going to illustrate this as he describes a scenario that would require great patience and a scenario that his readers would have been greatly familiar with. James writes, The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Now, many of the individuals reading this letter would have been farmers. It was an agrarian society. So when James describes a, a farmer who patiently waits and endures and waits for the rains that will come so he can bring about the desired crop, this would resonate in a deep way. So much so that in verse 8, James tells them, Now you be like the farmer and patiently wait 
the crop that is going to be harvested. But in this case, the crop that is going to be harvested is the imminent return of Christ. Look at verse 8. James writes, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. James tells these individuals who are enduring tremendous suffering, he says, guys, you, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, which means be firm, be steadfast, be resolute. Because the coming of the Lord is near. It's near. Now, what did James mean when he described the coming of the Lord as near? Think about that. How do you understand that to be true? How would you explain that to somebody? How do we reconcile the nearness of Christ's return with the 2,000-year delay of his return? And this is an important question because many people have looked at this text or the hundreds of texts like this in the New Testament that speak of this imminent return, and they have come to some wrong conclusions. They have said either the Bible has errors and can't be trusted, and James was wrong, or they've said the whole thing is a farce, and James lied. He's not coming back. So what is our response? Well, I see Christ's return as near for the readers of James's day and near for us 2,000 years later in three primary ways. Three primary ways. Number one, it is near temporally. Temporally. And I feel confident saying that knowing that 2,000 years have passed because we must recognize that God's relationship to time is different than our relationship to time. We see that in places like 2 Peter 3.18. Peter says, with the, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God's clock operates differently, and, and what we feel like is a long time is not necessarily a long time there. So it's near. Secondly, the return of Christ is near chronologically. It is near chronologically. It is near chronologically because it is the next event. On the prophetic calendar. It is the next event in the course of redemptive history. The next major thing that is going to happen in God's salvation, plan of salvation, is his return and what we understand as the rapture. So it's near temporally, it's near chronologically, and thirdly, it's near spatially. It's near spatially. And it is near spatially because the return of Christ is described as something that's going to be sudden and without warning. It's as if the Lord Jesus is hovering right on top of us. He's right here. And he's just waiting. He's just waiting for the perfect time. He is waiting for the trumpet of God to sound that announces and signals his return. For those of you who like big theological words, this is called the doctrine of imminence. It's the doctrine of imminence. And the doctrine of imminence states that Christ's return is something that could happen at any moment. At any moment. And the authors of Scripture did not make a mistake on, the time, on describing the timing of the Lord as near because the actual timing was not the point. 
That was not the point. The point was, he's coming back. It's the next event. It could happen at any second. And we are to live with that understanding. And we are to live in obedience with that understanding that it could be today. As scholar Douglas Moo rightly points out, the early Christians' conviction that the coming of the Lord was near or imminent meant that they fully believed it could transpire within a very short period of time. Not that it had to. It could, but it didn't have to. Imminent means something could happen very soon, not that it must Now, you might be asking, Michael, why is all this important? How does the return of Christ, the doctrine of imminence, how does that impact my life? Because I'm just trying to survive. I'm just taking this thing one day at a time. I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other. What does this stuff matter to me? And in response to that, I have two things. Number one, hope. And number two, holiness. Hope and holiness. First off, the nearness of the promised return of Christ brings hope. It brings hope in the darkest hours because ultimately we know how the story ends. We know what destiny awaits those of us who are in Christ after the cancer, after the heartache, after the suffering. We know who wins. Let me explain it this way. Um, How many of you have ever gotten really stressed watching a sporting event? I don't. I don't worry about that, you know. I don't struggle with that. Yeah, right. I'm a total mess, all right? As a matter of fact, if there's a big Aggie game, Aggie football game, or a big Spurs basketball game, I don't watch it with people that I don't know well. And I don't watch it with people who aren't true fans because I'm a tad on the intense and emotional side of things. Now, I want you to think of that stressful sporting event. And just think for a second how different your experience would have been if you would have known going in who won. If you would have known that your team won, how would that have changed your viewing experience? If you had known that your team was going to win, how would that change your heart rate during the game? I mean, how different is it watching a game live and watching it on DVR when you already know that your team won? It's like night and day. So even when the other team makes a good run and they have a big play and things don't look good, you don't stress out, do you? Because you know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. You just don't know how, and you just don't know when. But you know what's going to happen in the end. And folks, that is us as believers in Christ. We know how the story ends. And because of that, we don't need to spend our entire life Worrying and being stressed over the twists and turns in the game of life. Because we know who wins in the end. And that is the truth that brings incredible hope. Even in the hour of our darkest suffering. So Christ's return results in hope. And Christ's imminent return results in holiness. The Apostle John speaks about this in 1 John 2.28 when he writes... 
Now little children, so he's talking to believers. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away in shame at his coming. Christ's imminent return propels us to holiness because when we understand that his return could happen at any moment, that truth encourages us to be engaged in the things that bring honor and glory and blessing to God, not the things that we would be ashamed if we were doing when he came. And one of the things that would make us ashamed at his coming is something that James has hit on quite a bit in this letter, and that is our speech. Our speech. And he transitions to that in verse 9. James writes, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. You know, one of the great temptations for those of us or for anyone who's experiencing suffering, especially in a group, or you're being persecuted, one of the great temptations is to turn on one another. One of the great temptations is to start pointing fingers and assigning blame and looking for scapegoats. I remember one year I was coaching at O'Connor High School and we were used to winning a lot. And we started off the year and we lost a few games. And all of a sudden, all the parents thought all of us coaches had just forgotten how to coach football. And they would tell their kids that. Oh, those guys don't know what they're doing. They're making all these mistakes, this, that, and the other. And the community kind of was down on us. I remember one day I was going to lunch in Holotus and I had a uh, O'Connor football shirt on. And I go to get my food and the guy's like, what's going on with y'all? What's wrong with y'all? What's gotten into y'all? And I was like, hey, dude, I just want my salad. <laughs> just give me my salad. All right, relax. And as a result of all this, all this criticism, there was a great temptation amongst the team to buy into that criticism. There was a great temptation to turn on one another. And one of our great jobs as coaches that year was to keep that from happening. That we kept the guys in the locker room from turning on one another. But instead to rally around one another and support one another. And this is the point James is making here. He's telling the brethren to stick together and to not turn on one another. To not complain to one another and to not complain about one another. Because if they cannot refrain from doing that, there's a judge who's standing right at the door. He's imminent. James follows up this stern warning with some much needed encouragement. As he tells these suffering believers, he says, hey, I know it's tough. I know this is a bad deal, but look back. Look at those who've gone before you. Look at the prophets. Verses 10 and 11, James writes, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You know, one of the great encouragements the Lord has given us in this lifetime are examples. Amen? Other people. Other people who have been through what we have gone through or are going through. They have been through what we're going through and they've come to the other side victorious. 
That is a great encouragement. That's why some of our ministries here at this church, like our post-abortion ministry, Redeemed and Restored, or our Grief Share ministry, which deals with people who have lost loved ones, are such powerful ministries because of that shared experience. James says, guys, I want you to think for a second about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I want you to think about Isaiah, the prophet who was sawed into two when he died. Guys, I want you to think about Daniel, who was deported. I want you to think about Moses leading a stiff-necked people and never entering the promised land. James is saying, guys, suffering is not a new thing. Suffering is not something that just started in the 21st century. Suffering is not something that began in the first century. Followers of the one true God have had a heritage of suffering from the very beginning. And maybe no one exemplifies that more so than that of the Lord's servant, Job. Now, we don't have time to fully engage the story of Job. But in a nutshell, Job was a man of great faith and great integrity. In Job 2, God describes him and says, There is no one like him on the earth. There's no, he's the best of the best. He's the cream of the crop. He's God's number one guy. He's Job. And God takes this man of great faith and integrity and, and allows him to undergo unspeakable suffering. Unspeakable suffering. He loses all of his livestock. He was a wealthy man. He loses all of his livestock. All of his kids die. He is afflicted with one physical condition after another that would make us tremble. He loses his wealth, his family. His body is in unspeakable pain. His wife hates him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? His friends come to him and they say, dude... It's happening because you're just in terrible sin. That's why God is afflicting you with all of this stuff. And yet in the midst of it all, James perseveres and endures. Now that's not to say he didn't have some serious struggles along the way. That's not to say he didn't have some serious questions for God and some why me's. But he endured. He was faithful. And he did that because he never lost hope in the goodness of God. He never lost sight of the goodness of God, even in the midst of unspeakable suffering. I, like many of you, have been touched by the life and the words of Corey Tinboom, the Dutch Christian who worked during World War II to hide Jews from the Nazis, a crime that she was imprisoned for along with the rest of her family. And later in life, Ten Boom recounted the goodness of God in the midst of suffering when she wrote these powerful words. Listen to what Ten Boom wrote. She says, I, Often I have heard people say, How good God is. We pray that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister, Betsy, to starve to death. 
before my eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark and there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, Betsy said. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Ten Boom then concludes, There's an ocean of God's love available. There's plenty for everyone. May God grant you to never doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstances. Brothers and sisters, how do we define the goodness of God? When is God good? Is he only good when life is a picnic and everything is smooth sailing? Or is he also good when there's nothing but storms around you and you can't see in front of your face because it's raining so hard? None of us want to suffer like Job, me included. I have no desire to suffer like Job. None of us want to see and experience the things Corey Tinboom did. But may we all be people that never doubt the victorious love of God, whatever our circumstances. In verse 12, James brings this passage to a close with an interesting statement about oaths. James writes, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. As I noted earlier, James is quite clear that he is serious about taming the tongue and our need to tame the tongue. And one of the ways people were failing to control their tongue was displayed by the constant swearing of oaths by people in that time. They were making oaths on a variety of things. And what it was ultimately displaying was their lack of integrity. Their lack of integrity. Much like in today's day and age when someone says, Hey, I promise, I'll do it, I promise, I swear to God. I swear. And what they're ultimately saying is that my word is what? Not good enough. So I have to connect it to a flippant oath. James says, instead, in light of the imminent return of Christ, do not resort to needless and destructive oaths, but rather be a people with the integrity of heart that lets your yeses be yes and your noes no. And we are people who are to be of the same ilk. Now, as we come to a close this morning, I cannot help but think of the enormity and the diversity of suffering both in this sanctuary and ultimately around the world. And it is tempting, especially when one finds themselves in the midst of great personal struggle and suffering, to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the love of God, and to doubt any type of promised return of Christ. And it's at those times when our suffering is at our greatest and our spirit is at its weakest, that we must fix our eyes to the cross. We must fix our eyes on the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, suffered on our behalf.
Because the goodness of God, the love of God, and the promised return of God are all displayed in their fullness at the cross. What more proof of God's goodness and love does one need than the Savior of the universe? God incarnate, hanging naked on a tree in between two criminals with blood streaming down his face, suffocating, dying at the hands of sinners. What more love, what more evidence of God's love does one need? You see, the cross shows God's goodness and love. And the resurrection, the empty tomb, friends, that shows his power. That shows his power. Because the resurrection proves Jesus' power over death. It proves his power over death. It proves his victory over sin. And it proves the reliability the trustworthiness of his future, physical, literal, bodily return. The resurrection proves it. And this is the blessed hope for all of those who are in Christ. This is our destiny. But this destiny is only for those who have believed. Because you do not possess the blessed hope of Christ's return if you have not received the blessed forgiveness that was secured for us at Christ's death. But this morning, that can all change. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will move from death to life, from darkness to light. You can be forgiven your sins, adopted into the family of God, and become a possessor of this blessed hope in his future return. For the rest of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, may we patiently endure and persevere through the struggles of life, knowing that our reward and our hope And Christ's return is real, is imminent, and as Paul says, will be worth it all. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that each one of us knows what it means to suffer. Certainly, God, some have suffered more than others. And certainly our suffering may not compare in the same way to some of our brothers and sisters suffering around the world. And yet, God, we lay before you and confess that suffering is part of the human experience and is part of the Christian experience. And yet, God, we do not suffer as those without any hope. Because we know that there's a day coming. There's a day coming when you fulfill what you promised. When you come back when evil and suffering are dealt with once and for all. God, in this promise is good because of your work on the cross and your resurrection. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your willingness to go to the cross and die for our sin. Thank you for raising again on the third day physically, showing that you conquered death and conquered sin. 
And God, may we be a people that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of all the things in life that can drag us down, may we be a people that firmly fixes our eyes upon you in your faithfulness and your mercy and your compassion and live in such a way where we long for the day of your appearance, your coming. And we live a life of obedience that brings honor and glory to you in the meantime. God, thank you for this blessed hope of your return. And thank you that the pain and the suffering and the evil that we are now, which, which now we are enduring will one day be done once and for all. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for your love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we have prayer partners up here, they'd love to pray with you. If you've got something that you want to share, um, that's what they're here for, and they would love that opportunity. The rest of you all have a fantastic Sunday and a great, happy Thanksgiving.